Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to another edition of the Lizard Wellbeing Show, the weekly podcast that is jam-packed with wellness wisdom that you can trust. And today's episode is on that vitally important topic of our mental health. Ben West is an activist and campaigner who's been at the forefront of supporting young people with their mental health ever since his 15-year-old brother Sam took his own life in 2018. Now, Ben West has written about his experiences in This Book Could Save Your Life, which is out now. And as a warning, in this episode, we will be discussing mental health and suicide in a very frank and open way. So if this conversation isn't for you right now, there are plenty of other episodes in the series that are lighter in tone. Ben, a very warm welcome to you. And I actually know about you through my daughter, Brella, who I think connected with you over Instagram while at university when she was doing some work with mental health awareness herself during lockdown. Yeah. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having having me on. Yeah, I think I've known Brella for like a year around that and obviously spoken to her quite a lot about uh, mental health, particularly around universities and, and support that's on offer in universities as sort of part of what what I'm doing with young people around around their mental health. Mm. Well, congratulations, firstly, on the book. Thank and you. you mention in the introduction to the book that writing it was clearly something that you had never expected to happen. How was the process of writing it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's quite, it's quite a funny joke, actually, with my friends at the moment, because I was the least likely person um, in my friend group to have become an author. Um, I was given extra English lessons at school. I was told not to bother sitting my English exams at school because I was always considered to be behind in terms of English. I was much more of a sort of maths side of the brain person. But I guess for me, you know, obviously the experience I had was awful. And the last four years I've spent trying to understand mental health, trying to understand suicide. And I've spent so much time trying to build that understanding, talking to people, understanding this space. Um, I've often said I'd love to, I'd love for everyone to have gone through what I've gone through in that they've met the people I've met and and experienced what I've experienced, but without having to have lost a loved one. And so Mm -hmm. for me, when I was given the opportunity to write a book, I was given that opportunity to take people on that path and and give people the knowledge that I've now got that's totally transformed my life. The writing process, though, was it was a strange experience. As someone that hasn't written a lot in the past, it was a bit of a a learning curve. 
Um, but for me, a, a lot of the time, I was talking about things and really sitting with thoughts that I hadn't sat with before, alone, on my own, last summer, writing it, having to sit there with some really uncomfortable things and go through it. For me, it was such a, almost a form of therapy, um, really analysing how I was thinking and, and putting it on paper. And I think when you read the book, you can sort of see that thought pattern um, and, and analysis um, go along through the narrative. It was a very therapeutic experience for me and something I'm so glad I did because it got I got out of my system so much that I needed to get out. Well, very interesting. And there's there's a couple of points there actually to, to pick up on. First of all, congratulations on being a best-selling author when you were the boy least likely to <laughs> yeah. actually succeed in your English exams. Um, I think also it shows actually what we are capable of, even though we might not think it. And also, I guess we're not all going to go on and write books about our own personal situations. But I, it, for me, it kind of highlights the point of the process of processing information. People talk about journaling, don't they? And writing things down mm. and I guess when you're in that situation when you have to commit pen to paper or or finger to keyboard it does make you think about things in perhaps a slightly more in-depth way oh definitely and I've, I've said a few times actually since we launched it I never I, I when I was writing I, I really forgot that people were going to read it it wasn't a book that <laughs> I was I was writing I mean it probably might probably have some things to say about that but I, uh, I wasn't <laughs> writing it in a way that was for anyone else. Obviously, I wrote the book and I started writing the book because I thought, oh, how good would this be to give people this information to help people in this way? And I got to the end of chapter one and I started chapter two. And I just sort of thought, you know, this is this is doing far more for me than it is for anyone else. And, and I hope I really hope that it's helped people. And from what I've heard so far, people have really found it useful, but it's oh, helped definitely. me to no end. And this is the, the same thing. Uh, th- what you were saying is like, you know, most people are not going to go and write a book about that experience. But it doesn't mean you don't have the opportunity to do that. It doesn't mean that, you know, you can you can write an entire book and people not read it. And I, I tell you what, the benefit of doing that is huge. Um, and I've started, you know, as a as a result of writing this book, I've kept going and I'm writing about things that that I'm going through now. And not because I ever imagine it being published or anyone reading it, but because it's such a good way of making thoughts which are incredibly difficult to understand, very difficult to see and picture. It's making them into a physical thing. And sometimes you can get so, you can drown in thoughts because you don't understand them and they sort of, they take over your whole consciousness. But if you can get them on paper and you can really sit with that and analyse it on paper and you can see it in front of you, this experience or what you're going through, then it becomes a physical thing and you can see it and you can analyse it. And I find that such a good way of dealing with things that, that I wouldn't necessarily see in front of me as a physical thing it would be a sort of manifestation of of grief or trauma that is now there sitting in front of me on a page and for me that's just Mm. such a good way of of making it digestible and and it's like something I can deal with so I've kept it going that is a really interesting comment and let's just talk about the whole area of mental health for a moment before we have a deep dive into specifics how common are mental health issues and do you think it's more prevalent now in younger adults and frankly we might all be touched by that whether it's ourselves our kids our grandkids this is a really interesting question because you see a lot of different numbers thrown around I think it comes down to what we think are mental health problems or or what's going on with mental health there I think in mental illnesses it's a very different it's very different in that you're diagnosed something. So the rate of of mental illness, I think, you know, off the top of my head, it's about four students in every UK classroom have a diagnosable mental illness. 
Um, wow. But in terms of the uh, in terms of the the sort of wider picture, in terms of the the prevalence of mental health issues, I can't think of a single person I know in my entire life that doesn't have that hasn't struggled at some point with their mental health. In exactly the same way that I don't know a single person in my life that I've ever met that hasn't struggled with their physical health. I think we all struggle with our mental health at some point. Where that's And these are it's very natural things to go through, right? Breakups, exams, a large number of different things that might go on in your life. I think everyone struggles with their mental health at some point. You know, for me, I, I like to think of mental health as like a spectrum. You're not at one point of that spectrum for your entire life. You're going to fluctuate above and below a certain line. So I think in terms of who struggles, you know, I'd find you'd find it very, very hard pressed to actually find someone that hasn't at some point, which is something I only knew after Sam died. When I started talking to people, when I started talking to my friends and my teachers and and my family and my local community, I realized that everyone had something they weren't talking about or something that was going on that they felt that they didn't feel comfortable sharing. Um, And that's really what got me started into the mental health stuff, because I thought, how can we how can we let people just not be candid about what's going on in their life? It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Let's be honest about the stuff that's not going yes. well. Um, it's, it's quite simple. You know, if it's not going well, let's talk about that. I, I think that is, that, that is interesting. And you say, rightly so, there's nobody that we know that doesn't have a physical mm. health issue or has had a physical health issue in the, in the past or ongoing. And the same with mental health. You know, we, we are just as much our brains as we are, our bodies. Can we talk about what's going on with the world right now? Because we we've come out of the most terrible pandemic. We've we've seen the catastrophic effect of of lockdowns on mental health, particularly with young people. And I've have two teenagers in my family um, who went through lockdown and absolutely devastating. So I, I'm very close to this subject. How do you see lockdown affecting mental health and and the outcomes of that now? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I think, um, well, it was an awful thing to have had to deal with. I think when you look at what the definition of trauma is, I think we have sort of gone through a a collective society-wide trauma and being separated from families, from loved ones, having to deal with the, the number of the suffering on the news every evening, the isolation, the loneliness. It, it's, it was an awful, awful time. And the repercussions of lockdown are still very much hitting now. I was at uni during lockdown. I was in third year and I actually left my degree. Um, and I think in part it was because of of, of the way that the, the world was and the way that, that I was being forced to, to live. It was awful. And, and that's yes. coming from me. And I've spent four years Working, on working mental in health. mental health. You oh know, my goodness. I, I know how to look after myself, you know, yeah. through, a, through a terrible experience. I've, I've learned a lot about how I function. And I, the first day I arrived at uni in third year, it was my first day. And I got one of those, uh, one of those phone calls from NHS track and trace being like, you need to isolate for two weeks, my first oh. day. And so I spent the first two weeks of third year at uni in a, in my, uh, in my little flat with a kitchen, luckily, and I was just there on my own for two weeks. Um, and it was awful. It was so awful. I remember, you know, all those classic lockdown things. I did a 5K one day in my room, just running up and down. Cause I was so oh, bored. for goodness I sake. Know. But I was really lucky in that I knew how to look after myself. Yes. And I had friends there and I was in a city I knew really well. Liverpool, absolutely love it. I knew how university worked. I knew what my course was. So I was, I was sort of lucky in that respect. And it was around the same time that I was isolating 
that news came out of Manchester that a, a young boy, Finn, had taken his own life in almost the same circumstance that I was in. Oh and my goodness. I cannot tell you, I spoke to um, Finn's family and his friends. Again, another student took, her, took his own life at university during lockdown. I spoke to his friends. Um, mm. a, a, another girl I know took her own life during lockdown at university. I spoke to his mum. It's absolutely mom. shocking. I mean, Brella Everyone. also, she, she got very involved with helping mental health uh, for students at Exeter where she was because the same thing had happened yeah. with a member of her circle. And it it is just beyond devastating that mm. this kind of happened. And has it left any kind of legacy now within young people's mental health moving forward? Is this something that we can kind of move on from and close the door and put behind us? Or is this something that we still need to be really carefully aware of? I'm, I think it's a little bit too, too soon to say. Some of the research that I've seen has said that it's it's actually okay, it's getting better, and some of it's it's definitely not. I think, if anything, it's it's taught us something. And I was involved in some research during the pandemic that I do talk about in the book. Is I was involved with some research with Accenture where we looked at we we surveyed twelve thousand university students, current university students, and some of the stuff that was found in that I, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was around forty five percent of students said they'd felt suicidal before. There was a, a figure of, I think it was 80%, 80% of students felt lonely either every week or every day. Um, uh, these were really bad, really bad. It was a really awful thing to have found. So I think let's close the door on COVID. Um, let's move on. But I think we need to take the lessons that we learned from that forward. And I was really surprised. Like I do a lot of work around sort of government policy and a lot of my campaigning focuses on on that. And I think now we just need to look at what happened in the pandemic, look at how universities reacted, look at how the government reacted in certain decisions and certain you know measures they yes. took and really reflect and, and understand why certain things were or weren't done um, in, mm. in response to mental health. Um, I was on, there was a select committee by the government the other day about, and it was titled, I think, something along the lines of lessons learned um, from COVID in, a, so in respect to higher education. And they mentioned mental health, um, I think it was twice um, it was mentioned in the hour and a half that they were talking so it's so so important off the back of that that it becomes our priority yes. and this is something you know I go into in the book is is what actually needs to change what lessons needs to be learned um, and why it should be an actual priority because like you said I mean the number of people that are affected by this and the number of people that you speak to that go as soon as you mention oh this person's taking their own life the number of people you speak to that are like oh like you just did like oh my my mm -hmm. daughter's just my friend yes daughter's friend it's just yes. unbelievable how many people are affected by this mm. it's very sobering and I'm very pleased that we have young people like you campaigning at government level and making your voice heard and behind you 110 percent as I'm sure everybody listening is too now, you became involved, obviously, in the world of mental health at the beginning because of the tragic passing of your brother, Sam, who was just 15 when yeah. he died. Can you tell us a little bit about what Sam was like? Yeah, um, he was so funny. <laughs> he was so, so funny. He had a great personality. He was always the one that would make you laugh. He'd always be the one at the dinner table that would like find that funny meme or that funny video and then like share it around and, and have us all in stitches. He was the class clown. 
He would make the whole, like, his whole classroom laugh. He was, like, incredibly talented. His art and music, he could paint, which I'm so jealous of now because I, I, <laughs> I wish I could paint. I am so bad at painting, but I really enjoy it. So it's like I paint and then no one can see that because it's, <laughs> it's so terrible. So I wish I had that, that talent from him. But he was so talented painting. He was really musical. He, like, he composed his own music um, digitally. Like, he made his own film scores that, were, that he would, like how I don't even know how you start to do that yeah um, that's amazing right uh so and he was very sporty like I often say you know the the stereotypical mentally ill person or depressed person he was the absolute opposite of the stereotype um the absolute opposite he was outgoing he was sporty he had loads of friends he was talented he had loads going for him um and I guess for me that just shows how easy it is to hide um something mm. that is so awful behind his bubbly personable character it, it was just such a shock for everyone is that what he was doing do you think was there something that happened that triggered the incident or do you think there was a lot of stuff being hidden behind this amazingly outgoing and bubbly facade it's really it's really hard so he was diagnosed with clinical depression in september 2017 so he had had a formal diagnosis um and he was getting treatment for it so he he clearly had you know he had the depression going on and at home he was very withdrawn he wouldn't he wouldn't be involved he wasn't like him he wasn't making everyone laugh he wasn't talking much at dinner he was spending a lot of time on his own in his room he wasn't really interacting you could tell something wasn't right but at the time i just thought he was you know 15 years old um i didn't know what clinical depression was at the time i just thought he was 15 years old who wants to play mm. happy families at 15 i certainly didn't so i sort of left him left him to it but i i always was a bit annoyed because at school when he was with his friends, he was like old Sam. He was laughing and joking and having fun with them. So, and this is something I sort of like. What a lot, of, like I was explaining earlier, is is sort of reflecting on certain memories and certain thoughts. I was so almost jealous of how he was in front of his friends because he wasn't like that at home. And sort of now I've realised it wasn't him putting on a mask at home and being stroppy and moody, moody teenager at home. It was actually for him feeling safe to be like that at home and not have the energy. Right. Um, and he was putting on that mask, that personality mask um, at, at school with his friends because he didn't want to appear different. I think a lot of people can relate that putting on a mask of someone you used to be or the person you think you sh you were is very easy because it's it's how you kind of want to gravitate towards yourself. So I think at school when he was being that funny um, funny Sam that was him trying to hold on to the old Sam and then at home it would mm. relax and and sort of the, the depression would would take hold and, and sap energy from him um, it was very very obvious looking back now but it was so so difficult why well, I, I didn't I didn't know until I opened that door in on the 21st of January to find what I found I had no idea I had absolutely no idea it was that bad Oh, my goodness. And you say it's obvious looking back, but, you know, I'm I have five children and four of whom have, have gone through teenage years. Mm. One is just looming and all of them have retreated to their rooms during particularly yeah. latter teenage years. All of them have become withdrawn, have become stroppy and difficult and uncommunicative and, you know, a bit of door slamming and, and you know, locking themselves away for hours at a time, not mm. wanting to, to chat compared to being the life and soul of the party when they're with their friends. How as a parent or as a sibling, do we tell the difference? I mean, what, what would you say? What would you advise? What would you say to people listening, thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, that sounds like my teen. What, what should I be doing about it? 
Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and like I said, I was exactly the same. I was, ex- I was exactly the same. Door slamming, shouting, arguing, running off. I was exactly the same. And I think every, most teenagers are, they go through that phase. So that's very normal. But I think the problem, the, the, the difference is none of us are, unless we're trained, clinically trained, none of us have the responsibility to diagnose. And our responsibility is, as family members, as friends, as siblings, as parents, it's not to try and diagnose or work out when something is bad or whether it's normal i think the the priority should just be if something if they seem moody or stroppy or unhappy in some way then ask them about it and if mm. asking them about it if you sit them down and have a i don't know a cup of tea or after dinner ask you know i noticed this is what's going on and are you okay and if you never ever need to talk like you know come and talk to me if you can say that and then they just sort of run off and go, oh, what the hell, and, and slam a door, then that's fine, okay? But they'll know then that you've asked that question. And as yes. I think people overthink this mental health thing quite a lot. You know, if you see someone slumped over in a chair at work and their face is drooped and they look quite unwell, you're going to go over and you're going to ask them, are you okay? Of course you are because they might be having a stroke. They could yes. come. Yes. They could suddenly reanimate and be and have just been asleep, and then go, "What on earth are you doing?" Or they could actually be having a stroke. And the difference is not, you, you know, in that situation, you don't have to be a neurosurgeon to go and ask that person if they're okay, just in case they're having a stroke. In the same way, you don't have to be a psychotherapist to go and ask someone if they're okay and make them feel safe coming to you if there isn't, if they're not okay. Um, and I think that's the real difference because people get quite frightened about the mental health conversation, especially parents and, and siblings. And I was, you know, I didn't want to ask how Sam was because I was scared of the answer. But the, the the most important thing we can do is ask so that people know that there is someone they can talk to if they are not okay. And they might be just asleep. They might not be having a stroke, but uh, but they need to know that you're the person they can talk to if, if they are. And that's the precedent you've got to set. And look, if they turn around and say, you know, actually, I've I've been really down. I'm really struggling at school or potentially at school. You know, a lot of the time it's someone's, you know, potentially there's bullying going on. Then that conversation opens up and then obviously you can explore that further. But the number one thing is just ask like you'd ask anyone else. If you saw someone else struggling in the world, just ask um, because I do anything to go back now um, and ask that question. Of course. And you are wise beyond your years. There's no question about that. And of course, you were just a teenager yourself when Sam died. Mm. But you took it upon yourself to campaign for better mental health awareness and understanding. What took you to that place? How did you get there? I desperation, to be honest. <laughs> at the time, I would have, <laughs> genuinely, I think at the time it would have, I would have told you, oh, you know, I've, I've, I've recognised this problem. I want to help, and in in part it is exactly that. You know, after Sam died, so many people I spoke to, you know, the messages were, "I'm really not okay either. Um, I've got depression. I've got anxiety. I've got anorexia. Just a whole host of different problems." People came to me um, about, and I sort of, <laughs> I was 17 at the time, and I saw that, and I was like, "Okay, we got to do something to open this conversation." But so that was one of the reasons. But I think, like I said, desperation. That was the worst moment of my entire life the weeks after Sam died I hated it it was awful because and I used to call it um it's like ceremonial sadness like everyone just has to be sad and I am not a I'm I'm not a serious person like I like having a laugh my a lot of my coping mechanisms in difficult situations is to crack a joke and have a laugh with people everyone coming around crying and everyone being sad and I just wanted something good 
and something positive and something, you know, colourful and happy to latch onto. Because, you know, at the same year that Sam died, I was doing my A-levels. I had to start university and I was like, I don't want to think about any of that <laughs> at all. I oh, hate revision. Ben. And so, um, <laughs> so I started campaigning and, you know, four years later, I'm I'm a little bit too deep to get out. <laughs> um, but no, I absolutely love it. And, you know, just to see the, the impact you can have here um, and, you know, be able to start those conversations, get people talking and, and, and get people onto the right support um, that otherwise wouldn't have been able to do that. I, that's an incredibly, uh, yeah, an, an amazing thing to be able to do, especially mm. because, I, you know, one of the reasons I entered this was to stop this happening again um, yeah. and to be in a position to try and do that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an amazing feeling. It does feel like, thankfully, people are opening up a little bit more now about their mental health. Is that how you see it or is there still a real stigma around talking about how you, how you feel? I, I think there's massive progress here. It's, it's, it is amazing and we have to remind ourselves sometimes that we are taking huge leaps here. Um, I think there's huge progress being made in terms of how many more people are coming forward and talking about what's going on for them, how comfortable people feel. Um, that's not to say we haven't still got a lot of a lot of work still to do. I think especially as men, there is still a lot of work that needs mm. to happen um, in terms of getting them to talk certain generations as well. Um, but I think young people especially, we we are getting it right. I think young people are already more open than we've ever been. And that's fantastic. But what that means is a lot more people are recognising that actually things aren't OK and so the demand for services, the demand for support, the demand for, for help is going up um, in the same way that if you were to start advertising um, and getting people to check their bodies for lumps and check their bodies for cancer, you're going mm-hmm. to see an increase in the number of referrals to cancer units. We're seeing the same thing. And often people confuse that with because we're talking about mental health people are becoming mentally unhealthy or mentally unwell. And actually, the, the truth is, because we're talking about mental health, more people are realising they're unwell. Um, and so what's key now is that we start to to adapt to follow that demand and we start improving access to services. You know, it's not right that people should wait over three months to get support um, for, you know, what is a, what we know is a fatal illness. Um, and so I think it's time now to turn that hugely positive attention around mental health and that hugely positive movement that we've got in in terms of being open and we start to work on creating really good sustainable support support systems that can be there for when someone does talk because the problem is if someone talks and there's nothing available there's really no difference between them talking and not talking um sure you know in the same way that having a heart attack and then being told to eat your five a day is not helpful um <laughs> that's a <laughs> it might very be a good, good perspective it might be a good preventative yes. But it's not gonna. It's not gonna. Yeah. It's not gonna do any good if you're not having a triple bypass. You're having a salad instead. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we just need mm. to ch- change that momentum and now create some progress in terms of support as well. Mm. Well, you are obviously an extremely practical person because at the, the end of each chapter of your book, there's a section on tips for helping somebody going through trauma, and you offer a, a wide range of help. You talk about how to deal with depression, how to treat shock, how to perform. CPR. I mean, was it important for you to go simply beyond talking about mental health and offer some kind of structured support there? This is this is it. And I, I, for me, the book was what would I have wanted to have put in the hands of seventeen-year-old me right. or fifteen-year-old Sam, and all the lessons that I've learned. And you know, 
including CPR. You know, I'm so, so glad that I knew how to do CPR that night because I'm not sure how on earth I would have coped if I didn't know what to do that night or, or you know, what would have happened then. So I'm so glad that happened. And sort of every, even even lessons like that that I wish I'd known or wish people would know if they're in that situation mm-hmm. that I thought was important to, to do. But also... You're absolutely right. Moving this conversation a little bit further along, you know, just giving it a bit of incentive to get a little bit deeper rather than simply saying, talk about your men's health, you know, really think about that and, and ask the questions of how do we do that? What are some of the things you can say to someone if you're struggling and then flip it on its head? You know, if it's all good and well saying, talk about your mental health, but if no one's prepared to listen or if no one offers to listen, then that really doesn't solve any problems. So a lot of the advice is, you know, what can you say to someone to start a conversation if you're worried about them? Um, and it's basically everything that I just think people should know um, from CBR to to what you can text someone if they've lost a loved one to all yes. the different things. Every little facet of this, of this conversation, I hope, was my aim to have just ticked off so that people can read the book and really, truly understand mental health, mental health awareness, mental health support, what needs to change to improve your life, what needs to change to improve the people around you, and what needs to change to improve society as a whole. And hopefully, fingers crossed, and so far so good in terms of the reviews and what people have been saying, mm. I hope that we've we've done that because, you know, it's trying to trying to give that 17-year-old me all the tools that he needed to have tackled that situation just a little bit better and given a little bit more of a chance um, for this not to have happened. Well, you, you do talk and, of course, write with such authenticity. And let's pause here just for a short ad break. When we come back, we will discuss more practical and helpful ways, this time moving the conversation on for ways for dealing with grief. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, welcome back. And we're moving on now to talk to Ben about grief. And grief is so personal. You know, everybody who experiences it feels differently. But Ben, after you lost your brother Sam, how did it make you feel? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> lots of different feelings. Um, mm. I don't think there was one feeling that that you can say, "Oh, this is how grief feels." It's I always used to describe it when people ask me about. I used to call it. Um, it's like being stuck in a washing machine on a cycle, and you can't get out the door. And there was you were just forced into this cycle, and it would roll you and and rush you around and you'd be in this cycle and cycle and cycle and you couldn't open the door and then suddenly it would stop and then you'd go on a spin cycle and something different uh, happened. Right. And, <laughs> and so it was like completely, it was always changing. You could never anticipate what was going to be next and you had feelings of anger and then sadness and then guilt and then shame and then all these wonderful cocktail of emotions that you were absolutely battered with. But uh, yeah, so it was, it, was, uh, it was not a fun, not a fun experience at all. This is why I think writing this book has been so profound in my own life is because I didn't actually really think about a lot of this stuff until writing it. I'd had a few counselling sessions before with a lovely counsellor that that did a, some really amazing work for me on, on, on my mental health. But it wasn't until writing this book that I sort of really looked at those feelings and how I felt and looked at how I went through grief and looked at some of the stuff that still affects me now um, and that you can pin back to, to grief. And um, and that for me, realizing those things are connected, and really and understanding that, and and realizing that so much of this is normal, that's one of the biggest things. That's an incredibly settling thing to have done, and that's one of the reasons I'm really glad I've done it because I like to call grief like my pet dog, like it's there, it's something to look after, it's uh, you know, it's something that that lives with me. That's not necessarily something to throw out and and reject. It's something to embrace and look after like you would a dog. And for me, counselling, writing this book, learning about grief was like taming that dog. So suddenly, you know, it can't perform tricks, unfortunately, but it can, it can behave and, and mm-hmm. you can have a little bit more control over it. And that's how I like to think about it is a lot of people are too quick to to with all sorts of mental health problems is too quick to reject them and to push them away and to reject them as part of you. But actually, as if you can recognize that these things, you know, like you're, you're like a pet dog are not going away, they're going to sit with you. So just, you know, put out a bowl of water, feed it every so often, look after it, train it. And, um, and you can be happy living with it. And you can actually, you know, be proud of having gone through that. I think that's a really key mindset that only came about because of the stuff I did with the book. I think that's an extraordinary way to look at grief. I mean, what a refreshing outlook. I think a lot of people going through grief will be really interested and helped and empowered, hopefully, by hearing your words. And you revealed in the book that you had remembered that your final words to Sam were actually fairly terse. Mm. And that led you to blaming yourself temporarily for his passing. What did you do to overcome the guilt, as you described it in the book? Yeah, I mean, that was awful. And I realised that that we had that argument before he died. So we had dinner and then I had an argument with him and then he oh. went upstairs. And so I, I, after about a week 
or so later I, I remembered that argument mm. and then suddenly it was it was awful it was like suddenly I realized it was all my fault that was absolutely horrendous oh, because then suddenly everyone that was coming around to our house crying uh, or my family uh, you know everyone that you saw that was that was affected by this I, or externally I'd be like oh I'm so you know this is awful I'm so sorry maybe even like crack a smile or a joke or something to cheer them up internally I was doubled down with shame and guilt and it's difficult to actually convey just how convinced I was I was absolutely convinced that it was my fault that I'd done that that the reason this all happened because of something I said and that was that was absolutely awful and to be honest with you that was one of the most and when I said that this book helped me I hadn't told anyone about that for three and a half years until I wrote this book I hadn't said anything about it because I was still so, so ashamed of having done that. I really hated who I was because I thought that I was intrinsically a bad person for having done that. And I'll tell you what, it took some work to get over that. It took some work to get over um, and to understand that. And what really changed that for me was the reason I didn't tell anyone about it, the reason I was still holding on to it and the reason I was still ashamed of it was because I was rejecting it and was because I was pushing it away. And as soon as that thought entered my head, I was going, no, 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 not, I'm not dealing with that now. And so I never really touched it. And the only reason I was ever able to rationalise it and, and, and work through that and understand that, of course, it's not my fault. You know, this is an incredibly complex issue. The only reason I'm able to do that is because I sat there for three months last, last year writing this book um, and... I chose to include this and I was, I'm very glad I chose to include this and I sat there and I really and when you read the book this is literally the first time <laughs> I was writing this stuff and really accessing this part of my memory um, and it was such a incredible moment to just like I said at the beginning of this have it on paper see it for what it is and as soon as I wrote it out and had the feelings associated with that come out and I saw it on paper I was like well, there it is that's that's what's been making me feel like this for so long. And then you can start rationalising it and being like, well, no, this is a really normal part of grief. It's an incredibly normal part of grief. It's very, very normal. I think for me, it was exaggerated a little bit because of what, have ha- what happened. But as soon as you can do that, um, as soon as you can recognise those things, and for me, writing it down and seeing it on paper, that was a way of recognising it existed. That was, um, yeah, I mean, I can still remember exactly that moment and that feeling. And I tell you what, the feeling of seeing that and the feeling of realising it sort of wasn't my fault, it was it was on par with the feeling I had when I decided to leave uni. It was like, honestly, it was just utter relief. It was so, so good. Um, it was like when you open a Coke bottle and it all just like fizzes out. That's how I felt. I was like a, I was like a really charged Coke bottle when someone had just twisted my lid and I was just... It was just, it was, it was just great. And uh, it came about just by recognising it. And, yes. and yeah, it was an um, amazing feeling. Well, you obviously have a, a good sense of humour and you speak in your book actually about the role that humour plays in dealing with grief. Do you think that people feel they shouldn't laugh? They shouldn't have a joke in the aftermath of any kind of tragedy? I think it very, it very much depends. Obviously, it depends on the person. Um, if, you, if someone is a serious person and you go around their house with, I don't know, like a clown's nose on, I'm not sure that's going to go down too well. <laughs> Maybe not. I'm not sure that's going to go too well. But for me, just a bit of lightheartedness. Like I said before, I hated this idea of ceremonial sadness. Like everyone's got to be sad just for the 
fact of being sad. And one of the messages I remember the the, the best were the messages that were quite funny. Um, someone I know from school that I didn't really know too well sent me like she sent me the you know the the standard message of I'm really sorry to hear what's happening. Um, this was literally the day I think it was like one of the days after after the news broke about Sam and. She sent me like pages, so many photos of her dogs and her puppies, and I was like, "This is this is brilliant," <laughs> but also humor. Like, it's just. Yes. I think humor is a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people think that you know trying to distract yourself is sometimes considered a bad thing. Like, you don't want to distract yourself because oh, you're avoiding it. And I was certainly told that when when this happened, a lot of people were like, "Make sure you're not." like distracting yourself and 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 moving moving your thoughts on make sure you deal with things like no 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 no. sorry the the week that something like this happens the hell the moment this happens have as many jokes as you want laugh with people because it's your brain's way of just overriding your emotions for a second and going we can't deal with this and it's a very natural response right Mm -hmm. if you were a caveman and something awful happened you wouldn't want your brain to just shut down and focus on the bad you'd want to be and protecting yourself in the moment. So have a laugh. If you know someone well enough to, in a, in a well thought out way, crack a joke, or the best way of doing it is being self-deprecating because that's not, <laughs> no one's yes. ever going to find that. You know, if you're like, oh, we can come around for a dinner, I promise not to give you food poisoning like I did last time or something to that extent, yes. if you had actually given them food poisoning, um, <laughs> then something yeah. like that, I think it's really good because I remember in the time I was desperate for someone to just have a joke with me. Desperate. Because mm. no one was being funny and no one was being being normal. And I was so out of touch with normality that I was I was being driven just into further into guilt and into into grief because no one was being normal. And I found that really weird. I was like, mate, you're my friend because you're funny. Why are you not being funny? Um, so I definitely think that a little bit of comedy is always a good thing. Mm, I love that about the the puppy pictures and in fact there's a section in your book isn't there on the role that phones play and messages I guess here in dealing with grief and in particular you've got a very helpful section on how to craft a message Mm. to someone who's experiencing loss so what should we keep in mind if we're going to be reaching out to someone in this situation? Yeah, I mean, the first and foremost thing is I I, I spoke to a lot of people at school afterwards, like I'm talking like year um, or a few months afterwards, and they they said they didn't know whether to send a message or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say always err on the side of sending it. Um, A lot of people are quite scared of that, of sending it. And they're like, oh, you know, what's my place to send it? You know, I think it's really important to send a message and to because, like I said, you have to make people feel safe talking to you and feel safe coming to you if there's a problem. And if you send a message, it might seem like just a benign, you know, a, a random thing to have done, but actually you're telling that person that you care. Um, yes. So I, think I definitely, definitely do send one, but th- it's difficult. I think, you know, it, obviously it's a horrible thing to have to send, but I think just do what comes naturally. I'm really sorry to hear what's happened. If you ever need to, to talk, um, you know, I, love to go for a walk or something I've, mm-hmm. also the key thing that yes. you point out in the book and i'm still spilling all the secrets from the book please do read the book if you want to no, i'm sure people will no, seriously we're giving it a very a very good sell don't worry yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah we'll much more in in the book yeah. <laughs> yeah one of the one of the big things i i say is when people send a message or talk to people they often say oh, if you ever need me, I'm here for you. Or if you ever want to talk to me, I'm here. Um, That's obviously a good thing to say. Um, But 
a better way of saying that is actually, if you ever want to talk, I'd love to. Put the onus on yourself wanting to rather than that. Right. Because people in this position are not going to want to force themselves on you, right? They, they're they not going to want to be a burden. Let's face it, most people are super independent. They're not going to want to lean on people. But if you can change the narrative to, I want to speak to you if you want to, then that totally changes it. And, oh, and if brilliant. you can say that in a way that's genuine, yes. like, like, exa- like, oh, I know this really cool walk by the beach. Um, if you want I'd to go I'd love to, that, I'd to love go with that. you yeah I often go but on my own but you can join me I'd love for you to join me or something mm-hmm. make it you wanting to speak to them rather than the other way around it's a really subtle change but it absolutely flips the narrative on its head mm-hmm. um, and that's a really really good one to to know if you're in that position Another area I think that you spoke about that you want to focus change on is the improvements in mental health first aid, particularly in school. Can you explain what that is? I've not heard that term before, mental health first aid, and and why you think that's so essential. Absolutely. So I think I was really shocked to find out that, you know, like I said at the beginning, the statistic around schools, Four children in every UK classroom have a diagnosable mental health condition. That's a stat. Um, Another stat is that 19,000, I think it's 11 to 18 year olds, will be hospitalised every year for self-harm or self-intentional injuries. So this is is really rife. But I was so surprised that there is no, there is, when you go and become a teacher, there are lots of different things you have to learn. Safeguarding, um, you know, basic first physical first aid in case one of your students goes into anaphylactic shock all these various nuances of how to become a teacher and what makes you legally a teacher there is not a single mention of mental health um in the entire in the entire statute requirements really gosh that is staggering isn't it absolutely and for some you know if you compare so for example with the anaphylactic shock example it's great that teachers are now being trained into how to you know administer an epipen and what to do in that situation which is great but if you look at if you compare the statistics in i think it was 2019 1100 um adolescents were hospitalized for anaphylactic shock and we've uh, compare that with mental health. Nineteen thousand of people of the same age group were hospitalised for self intentional self harm or self poisoning. Like there is so much of a demand for this these conversations. Mm. Um, so I started a petition to make mental health first aid a part part of teacher training. So mm-hmm. the teachers would be statutorily required to have this training to allow them to legally become a teacher so they could address those problems in the classroom. Because I don't believe there is anyone in society that is better placed to recognise when a a young person is struggling than teachers. So what mental health first aid is, is sort of gives you the ability, just like physical first aid would, to see when someone's unwell and give the very basic first steps to stopping them from getting worse and getting them the right help professionally. So what does first aid do really? It gets you to, I don't know, put a bandage around a cut and hold pressure on it and then phone an ambulance. In the same way, mental health first aid gives you the tools and and the sort of the confidence to approach someone that you see is struggling um, and talk them through a crisis and then be able to signpost them on to, to better support. That's basically what Mental Health First Aid does. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely essential skill for teachers, and I still do. Um, so we launched this petition, and currently the petition has 314,000 signatures. I've been to Downing Street. I've met the Excellent. Prime Minister. Excellent. Got a lot of support in Parliament. Yes. Um, Dr. Alex George is in support. So it's still an ongoing thing, but mm-hmm. I just think it's absolutely just such a basic thing for teachers yeah. to know in this day and age. Um, they're so well placed to, to be given that training. Very much agree. And I'll make sure that we put a link to that petition in our podcast notes Thank so you. that everybody can go and sign up for it. Moving on from schools, of course, 
there is the wider community and the older people out there as well. What kind of signs should we be looking out for that we can perhaps pick up early warning signs of people that we know in our family or our community, our colleagues? What should we be looking for as as a way perhaps to open a conversation about mental health? Yeah, uh, it's it's difficult to give you a, a sort of list of signs. I think most people know when someone's not okay. Um you certainly know when you're not okay. And I think if you know a friend or family member well enough, you you, you do generally have a suspicion when they're not okay. Um, but some of the things to look out for, if you know, if they're being secluded, if they're not wanting to engage as much as they usually would, if they're not, it's difficult to, to sort of put mm. a value on this, but if they're not being their usual self, mm-hmm. um, anything that might condone a how are you, are you okay? I think I overuse that question. <laughs> you know, you'd yes. rather you'd much rather yes. be annoying asking them all the time how they are than be the one that doesn't. Um, and you know, <laughs> uh, so be annoying, really. Ask them how they are. And I think you know, some of the things to watch out for are not engaging as much as they would, keeping to themselves a lot more. Um, the, one of the biggest ones is not doing what they used to enjoy. So if they were a keen tennis player, for example, if they're not doing tennis anymore, why are they not doing that? Um, mm. you know, if they're disengaging for them, from their interests, that's sometimes a really good tell of when someone's either going through something in their life that is really stressful because their attention is being taken away, in which case, let's give them some support, or they've got something going on um, that's stopping them from wanting to go out, wanting to engage with other people. Mm. So, um, so, but it comes down to it. It's, it's the whole mental health conversation has been blown into something that's very, very scary. Um, annoy people genuinely annoy people with how much you ask them if they're okay have coffee all the time with people like are you okay are you okay and the the important thing to note here is if they say no there is absolutely Mm. no responsibility on your part to help them in terms of clinical training in terms Mm -hmm. of that if someone says if you ask the question if you annoy someone to the extent where they're like "Ah, nope i'm not okay yes actually i'm not actually (laughs) you've asked me 50 times today already but but um then just you don't some people this is the reason people don't ask because they don't know how to answer the question if it's a no. okay so where do we turn people to for help if we get that reply that says no i'm not okay what where would you suggest we point people to yeah so i mean in the in the in the moment um because often a lot of people may not need actual you know clinical support they might just need someone to talk to um just to get something off their chest so the first thing is open your ears and be a good listener um the the most important thing is to not so many people and i'm one of these people i really really struggle with this if someone in my life is having a difficult going through a difficult time or and i had this just not not that long ago if something's happened to someone i am so quick to jump on the oh you should try this you should do this this is what you should oh it's, it's fine we'll sort this right and suggest things and it's, it's called it's quite well studied it's called being a rescuer and having a rescuing personality so when you want to offer advice and offer and you almost jump in to the sea to, to rescue someone to take them out but in the case of asking someone if they're okay that's not the best thing to do the best thing to do is ask an open-ended question just like how are you you know are you okay let them reply with no and then go what's going on and don't interrupt with suggestions and advice just let them talk and if it's uh, for example let's say it's i don't know they've just been fired from work or something just let them talk and let them talk and let them talk and one of the one of the best things you can do and one of the most useful things you can do and teachers love to do this all the time at school is um 
getting getting someone to talk more about a subject is very easy because all you need to do is not say anything. Because when someone is talking about something that, that puts them on the edge or feels a bit nervous, when there's a gap in conversation or silence, people generally keep talking and keep feeling. Yes. So if someone says, oh, you know, I've just been fired from work, don't reply. <laughs> just w- wait, a, wait a little bit and see if they, they keep talking and they keep following that on. And then if they, obviously, if they, they don't want to engage, then just sort of maybe ask a few probing questions like, oh, how's that making you feel? What's, what's going on? How, you know, how have you been feeling? How have you been, how have you been managing to cope? Just sort of ask those questions, probe a little bit deeper. And then in terms of signposting, I mean, obviously there's the GP. Um, GPs are generally very good nowadays at at being able to talk to people and understand what's going on and -hmm. put them onto the right support. They should absolutely be the first person to talk to if there's anything going wrong, because they are the ones that know better than most people what's available and what's not. Um, Obviously, there's a whole separate issue with waiting times if you are then in need of uh, mental health support. Um, But often often that might not be the case and you can be referred Mm -hmm. to all sorts of other services and and other support places. Um, Mm -hmm. If another great service just for people to be aware of, there is a fantastic website that not enough people know about called Hub of Hope. And if you search Hub of Hope online and you type in your postcode, you get all the list of all of the local mental health services. Amazing third sector, private, um, NHS, everything comes up um, that you can then get straight to their website because there's so many things that people don't know even know exist. Brilliant. I'll make sure that we put links to that too. Hub of Yeah, hope. yeah. It might just be worth mm. knowing. And and it brings up everything, like very specialist things as well. Um, so mm. definitely one to, to be aware of. And lastly, where do we find more about you? More about me? Um, well, obviously, I've written a book, so there's quite a lot about me in there. Um, yes. <laughs> and then I'm always I'm on all the social media. Instagram mm-hmm. is my main one. That's where I uh, that's where I do all of my most of my stuff. So I'm on there. I'm at I am Ben West. I'm Ben West on Facebook and on Twitter and or TikTok. I think I am. I don't know. Um, but yeah, pretty much everywhere. Um, ben West will will bring me up on the socials. Brilliant. Ben, thank you so much for your time. That's the author and activist Ben West. His book, This Book Could Save Your Life, is out now. Thank you. And if you have been affected by anything we have discussed, you will find more information with links and resources, especially on ways to deal with grief over on lizellwellbeing.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to get in touch, you can find me on social media at Me or the team and me at Wellbeing. Please do leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. It really does help other people to find us and potentially find the help that they might sorely need. Well, I'll be back next Friday with another dose of wellness wisdom you can trust. Until then, go well. Bye-bye. The Lazal Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lazal, and is a fresh air production with grateful thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith and Chesie Bent. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.